This is the One Thing Podcast, where we teach you the surprisingly simple truth behind extraordinary results. My name is Jeff Woods. I'm the vice president here at the One Thing team. Anytime in your life you feel like you're hitting up against a ceiling of achievement, you're missing a person, a relationship. Anytime you feel like you could be doing more, you could have greater results, yet there's just not enough time, you're missing a person. Many times I've heard Gary Keller say, no one succeeds alone. And recently we had a big convention for Keller Williams called Megacamp. There was 12,000 agents that were in Austin for this. And the whole point of this is Gary put some of the top people in the world up on stage to interview them about their businesses. And one of the people that I saw being interviewed is the woman that you're going to meet today. And for many of you, you got to meet her back in episode 78 that was released on October 2nd of 2017. The episode was titled, How Mindset, Purpose, and Relationship Can Change Your Life in Five Years or Less. If you did not hear that episode after listening to this one, I would strongly suggest you listen to it because her story is truly incredible in terms of how she is where she is at today. So I would listen to that after this episode. If you just look in the description and show notes below, you will see the link there. She is a MAPS coach, which is a coach for Keller Williams agents. And she's also the founder and owner of Your Realty Leverage, who finds and trains administrative and operational talent for real estate agents. Now, while we know that only 20% of our audience is real estate, 80% of you have nothing to do with real estate, uh, real estate has nothing to do with this episode. This is all about being the type of person that can recruit and retain amazing talent based on the principles of the one thing. What we have often observed for many of you who are the visionaries, you're the entrepreneur, you're the the owner of the business, you're the leader in the organization, uh, oftentimes you are doing a lot of things that really you shouldn't be doing. The person that you're missing may be a great executive assistant, a great assistant or administrative support person. The challenge is, when were you trained how to find that person? What to look for? What those conversations should look like? And in this episode, we are diving into multiple things. First and foremost, we are diving into how you overcome that limiting belief that you may be having that you're not in the position to bring on that next person. We're going to dissect why that is not true. We're going to talk about the specific characteristics to look for in an administrative support partner. We're going to talk to those of you who are in an administrative or support type role on how you can live the one thing even when you were hired to take your boss's 80% off of them. How do you live the one thing when your one thing is doing whatever they need? And then we flip it. And for those of you who are leaders or managers, How do you empower your support staff to live the one thing? We'll also share that toward the end of this episode, we sit down with Kaylin Less, the community manager for The One Thing, and talk to her about what her first 90 days were like coming into the training company behind The One Thing, the, the limiting beliefs that she had, the things that she read the book and said, oh yeah, that was great, but I didn't really think it was true. The specific moments when she realized that she really could do her one thing, even if that meant saying no to me as her boss. We know this episode is going to bring a lot of value to you. We also know that one of the things that's stopping you currently is that your environment is not supporting your goals, which is why we're going to ask you that as you go through this episode and listen, think of five people in your current environment that if they hear the way that today's guest talks about how we should be interacting with one another, that all of a sudden, that might just be that one thing that makes everything else easier or unnecessary in your working relationship together. We hope you share it with them. With that, let's get into this conversation with Brinley Tucker. I remember being in a mastermind with Gary and he was talking about um, the importance of no one succeeds alone, that if you want to have a big business that makes a big impact, you have to become a master of recruiting and retaining amazing talent. And he walked through how in The Millionaire Real Estate Agent, which any business owner should read this book, it really it's written in the language of real estate, but it applies to 
every business, they suggest that that first hire is a great administrative person. What we have seen is that most entrepreneurs, business owners, managers who uh, need leverage and know that they need leverage from an administrative standpoint have no clue what they should be looking for, how they should filter it, how to compensate them, and how to retain them. So let's talk about that. As you said, Jeff, you know Gary, one of our mentors, and I know that's a mentor to you, preaches to us the value of success through others. And something that we've learned and I've learned and just in business, I have you know a business in, in real estate, I have a business that's outside of real estate, that in, in all of what I do in my world, even in my personal life, if I don't have the leverage that I need in order to succeed at a higher level, I'm only growing to the extent that the leverage in my world is growing too. I can't help more people. I can't serve more customers. I can't deliver higher service if I don't have other people to help me take care of everything. And I get asked the question a lot, how do I know when I need to hire someone? And again, one of our the same mentor has told us that when I'm doing everything that I can and I can do no more, I'm missing a relationship. And so it's identifying what relationship am I missing, which I can usually look at and say, okay, in everything, what is my hourly rate? If I really drill down, what is my hourly rate when I am operating at the top of my game? How would someone figure out what that is? Because I would love, I think this will be a huge aha for people if they stop listening to this podcast and they have clarity on what their hourly rate is and then they start realizing all the stuff that they're doing that's below that rate. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. Exactly. So what I typically do is take it, take folks through an exercise, take a piece of paper and just draw a line down the middle. And on the left side, at the top of the left side, write, the, write 80%. And on the right-hand side of the page, write 20%. And under that 20% column, come up with the big five rocks that only you can do in your company that are going to drill the business forward. So if you don't, if, if these things don't get accomplished in your work week, if they don't get accomplished, we talk about it, if they're your one things, your big rocks. If they don't get accomplished, your business will stop and write those under the 20%. Then go over to the 80% column and write all that other stuff that really is working in the business, not working on the business. So that might look like email. In my world, it's email, it's calendar, it's scheduling, it's travel, booking travel. All of those minutia tasks that prevent me from accomplishing my big rocks in my business because I'm, I'm doing this administrative minutia in my world because I need to be focused on the bigger things. So when I get to working on the business, now I can identify, okay, if I'm working on the business, now I know exactly what maximizes my revenue. What do I make the most money doing? And then I can just divide that by the number of hours that I'm working to find out my hourly rate. Yeah, so and, once I, you, and I remember okay. the, the, the average full-time employee works 2,000 hours a year. So we'll just use rough numbers. If you have a salary of 50K a year, if you divide that by 2,000, basically divide it by two and lop off the zeros, 50K becomes 25 bucks an hour. 100K a year, you're 50 bucks an hour. 200K a year, you're 100 bucks an hour. Yes. That's your hourly rate. Exactly. And once you've determined your hourly rate, now you can say, what am I doing that falls below that hourly rate? And that is actually decreasing my hourly rate. And those are all of the things that if you can find someone else to do it cheaper than your hourly rate, that's leverage. So this is where I've had these limiting beliefs myself until my coach smacked me. And you know, Jay's like, dude, you're thinking about it all wrong. You think, well, I don't have... Our business is not in the position yet where it can afford to bring on that executive assistant or that content creator, whoever it is. Yet, when I watch you talk about this, if you find the right person, there should be an ROI there. Talk about that a little bit. So, you know, it's funny. We can either hire to growth or we can hire to maintenance. I also call maintenance desperation. 
So how many times have we had a business? Let's take a business that's based on seasonality. And we say, oh my goodness, we're so busy right now. We need to hire someone. Yet I'm afraid to hire them because I know in six months we may not be busy. And we're, li- we're, we're living under that limiting belief. Well, now what you're doing is you're saying that we only need leverage in our business when we're busy. Completely disregarding that the purpose of leverage is to help you grow. It's not to help you maintain and stay stagnant where you are. So if you're constantly hiring to desperation and to maintenance, it's like, here's what it's like, Jeff. It's like going to the grocery store hungry. You walk in, you grab the quickest thing that isn't going to require you to cook, and that's what you make. Is that the best thing for you? No. Is it what's going to give you the most nutrition or help you or help you feel better? It'll make you feel better for right now. That's the same thing when you hire out of maintenance or desperation. You're going to grab the one thing that you need the fastest, which isn't going to be the right talent, which is not going to propel your business. So now you're right back in the cycle of onboarding non-talent out of desperation when if you would have if you would have hired talent in the first place you should see a 3x return in 3 months Does by it, the end of their first 90 days your business should be on be scaling to triple now let me let's dissect that a little bit because when i think 3x i can imagine okay if it's a salesperson if it's a person in a in a revenue generating role okay they should be able to boost revenue what if it's an assistant well, let me ask you, Jeff, if you bring an assistant into your world, what is that going to allow you to do? Well, I actually did your exercise while you were talking about it. And my 20%, I wrote down four things. One is casting the vision for the organization. Two is recruiting amazing talent. Three is currently driving revenue. Ultimately, that can be done by somebody else. Four is being the interesting character of the business. That's why I do this show. The 80% stuff that's on there, whether it's writing emails, editing emails, doing scheduling, actually having to touch some of my email inbox since I currently do not have an executive assistant, um, working on copy for sales pages, actually having to manage other people could be done by somebody else. And the truth is, if I had an extraordinary ops manager who came in a lot of the things that I'm having to do from a project management standpoint, which is taking up probably 50% of my time, I get to take that back. So how so if we were if we were guessing, if you didn't have to do any of the things that were under your 80%, how much more money do you think you could make being able to be in your 20%? For the business, it I mean that could be seven figures. Mm-hmm. And how much would you pay an assistant? Right. If we're in Austin, you know, fifty to eighty K is is very competitive for an executive assistant role. So I wasn't a math teacher, but that's a pretty <laughs> low percentage compared to seven figures, isn't it? <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So let's let's so let's talk about the limiting beliefs around why we actually just don't do it because it makes bingo. total sense, right? Bingo, bingo. I'm putting myself in the listener's shoes going, sounds great in theory, and then there's the limiting beliefs. What are some of the limiting beliefs that people have when it comes to bringing on talent? They've been burned before. I've invested time before. I thought I found the right person and I got burned. And either I don't have the time to go through the process again or I don't want to waste the time going through it again to have the same result. So I might as well just keep doing it myself. Which usually we then ask, well, tell me about your tell me about your process of recruitment. Well, I collected resumes on Indeed and or one of those job sites and they came in for an interview and they loved horses. Well, I have a horse farm. So it was like, you like horses. I like horses. This is awesome. And you were a secretary for two years. So let's get in business together. And they start the next day. So I kind of compare it to online dating. And now, Jeff, I know you're married. Happily. Yeah. And I'm not. And I don't online date. And for my friends that do online date, it's like match.com, right? So the profile is the resume. We see the profile online. Well, you see someone's resume. What are they doing on their match.com profile? How do they make themselves look? They put their best their best version of themselves out there, whether it's realistic or not. 
Absolutely. And then you message one another. So you have that initial message back and forth. And what do they, how do they usually show up in that message? They're the best possible version of themselves. Right. So that's our, that's our first initial contact with a candidate, right? They're still showing up in that best version. And then we schedule a time to meet. So what happens on a first date, Jeff? Oh man, you you put on your best outfit, get your hair did. You, you, yeah, you go all out. Yeah. And if you have great conversation, what happens at the end of the date? You schedule another one. Or you're like, we're getting married and I've already ordered the U-Haul. Um, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? And then you jump in and you wake up six months from now and is the same person laying next to you that you had that first date with? Your perspective of them is very different. The novelty has worn off. Now, if you had taken two, three, four, a year to get to know them, would it look different? Yes. So it's the same way when we're recruiting talent and when we're looking for talent. People are always going to show up as the best version of themselves on that resume. They're always going to show up as the best version of themselves in that first initial interview. You can go to any website these days and you can read hundreds of interview questions and know exactly how to answer them and know exactly how, how to show up to get yourself a job. So I'm putting myself in the shoes of someone who's listening to this because I know we have a lot of people who are in an entrepreneurial or a uh, business owner capacity. And even people who, frankly, are leaders in organizations and are doing a lot of stuff that they shouldn't be doing, they're missing administrative support. They're Mm -hmm. missing a great executive assistant. Mm -hmm. What... And this this is your wheelhouse. What are the two to three things that they should be looking for, that if this candidate just didn't have those qualities or that track record, it wouldn't be a fit. Hungry, humble, smart. Not what I expected you to say. Why do you say hungry, humble, and smart? So we always start there because it's always about people's attitude. So the U.S. Department of Labor did research and 87% of employee failures are due to an unwillingness to do a job. An unwillingness is an attitude problem. It's not a skill problem. And 87% is a pretty high number. And that, it, that, that statistic is from hourly employees, which is where your first administrator is typically going to fall is in that you know less than six-figure income, which could be hourly or a lower, lower spectrum on the salary, at lower spectrum on salary. So if 87% fail because they have an unwillingness to do a job, and that's a direct correlation to attitude, then should I be looking for skill first or should I be looking for hungry, humble, smart first? Yeah, get it, the attitude. Hire for attitude, train for skill. Yeah. So I always say that I can teach a hungry, humble, smart person to do anything that's within their strength zone or their behavioral style. So how do we identify if they're hungry, humble, smart? Ooh, what what are some of the best questions that you find yourself asking or coaching other people to ask to filter that? Yeah, great question. So hungry, it's not so much a question as it's looking at their track record. Did they work in high school? Asking questions about their work ethic. Asking questions around... Um, Give me examples of times in which you had to go above and beyond your in your position to get something done. What did that look like? You're looking for that grit. Were they an athlete? How far did they go in their athletics? That's someone that's hungry. That's someone that hates to lose more than they like to win. Mm. What about humility? Humility, they use if they use the word, if they talk about themselves a lot and they use the word I a lot. There's probably not a whole lot of humility if they're constantly saying, well, I did this and there was a team involved and they don't reference the team. There's most likely not a lot of humility because someone with a lot of humility is always going to lead with the team, with the company, with the group, with with the better of the whole. And the smart, well, Jeff, I think we both know a smart, you can really tell a person's intelligence level usually by just speaking with them. Mm-hmm. And the way that they carry themselves and the way they, they speak. And I also think part of this is um, the repetition. 
It's like if you walked into the gym once and you were asked to grab a pair of 100-pound dumbbells for the first time, the first time in the gym, mm-hmm. and we want you to just start curling hundreds like it's your job. Mm-hmm. How successful are you going to be? Yeah. You start with the fives, and after repetition, you work your way up. Talent search is very much the same thing. And I discovered just because hearing Gary constantly say it, it's always people, it's always people. And the more often you are in relationship with talent, the more you are looking for it, you really start to get a sense for uh, what is extraordinary and, and everything else. Well, here's the deal. As, le- as a leader, I have one job, and that's to hire the right people. If I hire the right people, then I don't have to do anything else. It's true. The most important decisions that I make are my hiring decisions. So and this is the One Thing Podcast. One of the biggest limiting beliefs that we hear from people who are in our Living Your One Thing community is, or when we're going into corporations and if we're doing a training, you'll we'll always have that administrative person who raises their hand and says, I love the idea of this. And my one thing is supporting my boss. My one thing is to be in their email. And you're telling me not to be in email. My one thing is to sit in on the meetings and making sure that I capture the notes. But you're saying meetings aren't always the one thing. How does someone in an administrative role live the one thing? And then we'll flip it and ask for those who are leaders and have people who support them. How do you as a leader go about empowering your people to live the one thing? So it's funny, I was just on the phone with someone, with a leader and their administrative talent that struggle. And this is a common... First, we have to address the communication that that lies. And you're dealing with two very different ways of thinking and very two different behavioral styles, hands down. Um, That's why the partnership is so crucial and they need one another so much. So going back to the exercise that we did, Jeff, of the 80-20... When we look at that, everyone in the organization should have their 80-20. And when that administrator sits down and identifies what those five to six big rocks are, there's a lot more clarity around how to stay in that 20% and focus on their one thing. What happens is, is they start to treat everything and they start doing their 80% at the expense of their 20%. And the big rocks don't get accomplished. And therefore, they don't feel like they're getting anything done. And they're very high level, check off the box. I I get gratitude and I feel good about myself when I complete something. Where typically the leader is, I feel better when we close the deal. I feel better when we move the business forward as a whole. And it's instant gratification. So going back to your original question is, You can't go as literal as it's going to be a one thing. Your top 20% is your one thing. Your one thing is to make sure that the 20% of your job that needs to be done in order to drive the business forward, which is through supporting your leader, is done first. And then everything else. You've coached a lot of leaders. You've coached a lot of administrative talent. Have you ever come across a leader that did not want their support staff to be successful? Absolutely not. Have you ever come across a leader that if they were asking their support staff to do something and the support staff said, this is not my one thing. My one thing is to support you is to actually do this. Have you ever coached a leader that would have been offended by that? No. And and, and on that point, that's where the challenge and the gap and the opportunity can sometimes lie. Is that the administrative talent is afraid to to be confrontational in the sense of of protecting their time. And and they are in charge of protecting their time. No one else can protect it for them. Because here's what happens. You have a high driver personality that's a visionary. And there's a great book called um, Rocket Fuel, Jeff, that if you're Mm -hmm. listeners, that it's a great book for a leader and an administrator to listen to together, is that you have this visionary and you have this integrator. Typically, the visionary that's casting the vision doesn't have a realistic expectation of how long it actually takes to integrate that vision. So if no one tells them, they just think it should all be done right now. So it's it's part of the administrator's responsibility to be communicating in order to support you and, ca- and, and integrate your vision 
this is what it's going to look like in order to get that done. You brought up the idea of personality, and I think this is something that is really, really huge and why having some type of personality assessment at the core of your business and your hiring process matters so much. Gary was on stage last week, and he was talking about the people who are the empire builders, who are leading the charge, building the business, scaling it. They do it, and it's messy. It's really messy, and I I second that because I I move really fast, and I have uh, I I create issues sometimes in the business. And I remember when I was missing an executive assistant, and then when we were missing somebody for our community and engagement. Jay said to me very specifically, "You have to surround yourself with people that will slow you down. You have to surround yourself with people that will naturally want to pull you back and say, let's do it.'" this way instead. So it's not all duct taped together and the wheels end up coming off the organization as you scale. Part of, you, you said it, this partnership is that the person who is in the leadership position is likely going to want to move really fast. And the person who is in the administrative or support position, you need to empower them to say no to you. You need to empower them to absolutely slow you down and build a platform that will scale. And I always say it's better to ask for approval rather than permission. And what that looks like is instead of going to your leader and saying, can I do this? Go to your leader and say, this is what I'm going to do. And if I don't hear back from you, I'm going to assume that we're a go. Most drivers, 99% I would bet, if they don't want it to happen, you're going to hear from them. If you reverse it into a question in which they you depend on them in order to move forward, you could wait days because you get lost in a sea of emails, you get lost in a sea of priorities, and you basically just become one of the squirrels. I love that. I love that. So if there's somebody who's listening to this right now who is in a support type of position, whether they're an assistant or whether they just they support someone else. And they have limiting beliefs around when their boss comes to them and says, hey, I need you to do this. What are some some language, some things that they can say that would help them take a stand for their one thing and not constantly be distracted by everyone else? Be empathetic to the fact that they have no idea what your plate looks like. Even though they've most likely assigned everything that's on your plate, they have no clue what's on it. Because the minute that they give it to you, they forget about it. And they typically aren't going to bring it up again until someone asks them for it or they have that 2 a.m. in the morning, wake up in bed and go, oh my gosh, I haven't heard about this in a while. I hope it got done. I'm just giggling. Like I have the mic on mute because I can't stop laughing because you're describing me. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's so true. That's the behavior, right? So first and foremost, as, an, as, as being on the integrator side is... You know, take a moment to say, okay, I have to reprioritize for them. I have to explain, I need to explain to them everything that I currently have on my plate, reassess the priorities is what I believe the priorities to be in alignment with what they want the priorities to be, and then create the plan of action to go forward. And I always say before you leave any conversation where you're reprioritizing tasks or rearranging your plate, always recap the conversation. Simply say, Mr. Leader, so that I know we're in alignment and we're on the same page, this is how we're moving forward. Our priorities are now one, two, three, and they're going to be done by X, Y, Z. Because as an integrator, it's your job to always be moving from X to Y by Z. They don't get to determine the how. They only get to determine what needs to be done and and what the X, the Y, and the Z are. They don't get to tell you how to do it. Go into that more because I, I, I know a lot of people who are in that support role that you've got a boss who doesn't realize it, but they're accidentally diminishing. They're accidentally micromanaging by telling you how they want it done when really a great leader just tells you the results they're looking for and they let you figure out the how, like you just said. What's the best way for someone to respond in those types of situations? Let me ask you, Jeff. You giggled when I described 
the behavior because it was relatable. So how would you want someone to approach you in that situation? I can share what Kaylin has done. She has been really masterful in doing this. And for those of you who don't, do not know who Kaylin is, she came on to help us with content and the community engagement for our membership platform, Living Your One Thing. I remember not even realizing that I was telling her how to do her job. And she looked at me and she asked and she said, is that the best way that it can be done? And I looked at her and I said, what do you mean? She goes, well, you just, you proposed a way for it to get done. Is that the best way for it to get done? And immediately just snapped me back and made me realize, oh, I just told her how to do her job. And maybe she has some ideas. And I said, well, what comes to your mind? And what she brought up vastly exceeded what I was bringing to the table. And that's what talent will do. And the reason I say that is because, Jeff, as a driver, do you like to be told what to do? No. Do you like to be bossed around? No. So whenever an integrator is dealing with a visionary, and, and just like Kaylin did with you, it's asking questions. It's also the integrator's responsibility to take ownership and build trust. Here's what can happen in, in, in this relationship that is just so powerful, is that you have someone that does not hear tonality. High drivers typically do not hear tone. And they typically have very strong tonality that can come across as very direct. And then you have an integrator that typically hears tonality and can be sensitive to it. So it really is up to the integrator to take ownership of their role to build trust with their leader and with their visionary so that there never is a question of how to do something or never having to be told. Like Jeff, you probably know now that Kaylin in her strength zone is way better at those things than you are. So it doesn't even make sense for you to give her directive anymore. Mm-mm-mm. Nope, 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 nope. Right? And she had to earn that trust with you. Absolutely. And I think this is part of the shift of uh, moving from an entrepreneurial mm. mindset to a purposeful mindset or to the mindset that's required as an actual business owner. People who were successful starting a company did so because they were the jack of all trades. They were the Swiss army knife. They ran through walls. They took action and they did it fast. Yet when you actually talk about moving to being a business owner where you succeed through others, you have to relearn some skills and, so, and, and ways of thinking. And for me, a lot of the conversations with my coach are about where can I be slowing down more, identifying clearly the results that I am looking for, and the specific questions I can ask my people so that they can self-discover how to achieve those results. That is not natural. And it's insanely powerful. It is. And and then if we shift gears for a minute, Jeff, is that we start to make excuses for non-talent because we don't want to go back through the hiring process. Ooh, talk about it. Talk about it. Right? Or we don't believe that we'll be able to find the talent. And right now, and I shared this, recently on a panel is that right now we're at a 3.8% unemployment rate, which means that we have a very, very low pool of talent to draw from. And and we talk about this a lot being, you know, in business being marketing-based versus being prospecting-based. Online job ads and those type of of portals, that's marketing-based. Marketing-based, you have to wait for people to come to you. Prospecting-based, you go to the people. So if we're constantly, if our one job is to always be looking for talent, we have to be in the places where talent is. So I love this example. There was a restaurant in Orlando. And and for those of you that know Orlando, obviously there's a pretty big employer there called Disney World. And so a lot of businesses that are in hospitality have challenges finding talent. And so what this company did was that it offered free beer and chicken wings every Sunday night from 10.30 p.m. to 1 a.m. And they offered it for hospitality employees. So now what would happen is the restaurant manager would get three to 500 experienced potential applicants to visit his establishment once a week. And he never had a recruiting problem. That's prospect basing. 
being prospect-based. So are we being prospect-based or are we being marketing-based in our search for talent? And can we really expect true talent to come to us or do we always need to be seeking true talent? Yeah, what are the odds that the best possible person for the role, period, the best that there is, happens to be looking at that exact at that exact time maybe maybe not and i think it's it's the combination of the two absolutely absolutely so you know, i i, oh. I want to go in, in a direction i want to flip it because we've talked about for the people who are the integrator they're in the support position um i heard you basically say ownership over your role you have to have clarity on what your 20% is even though you are brought on to support the people in that visionary role, you still have 20% and you have 80% and it's to you to ensure that you are focusing in the 20% and that you are also communicating effectively so that the people you report to understand what's on your plate, have a sense of what your priorities are, and that you're also holding your ground and making sure that you communicate that it's your job. You get to figure out how to do it. They get to deliver the results that they're looking for. You get to figure out the how. So it's a true partnership. There it is, Jeff. It has to be a true partnership. And for some reason, there is still a subordinate undertone. And I call it the secretary syndrome, where you have the boss and you have the secretary. And administrative roles now and operations of a business, it is a true partnership. One cannot function without the other. And it has to be treated as such. And it's leadership, not management. And, and, and we've talked about this before, that leadership begins with self-leadership. As leaders, how are we leading ourselves in order to lead others? How are, are we taking ownership in what, what we own in the business, which is then showing them that they're empowered to take ownership of what they own in the business? And if you can get your operations and your administrators and your leaders in alignment and both in their strength zones, success is unlimited. When we come back, we're going to talk about how you as a leader can ensure that you're establishing a culture so that your people feel comfortable living the one thing. If you want to live an extraordinary life, it requires that you master something. And it only has to be one thing. When it comes to growing a great business, I remember asking the question, what's the one thing I can master? Such that by mastering it would make turning the one thing into an extraordinary business easier or unnecessary. The answer, recruiting great people. The challenge is finding great people is hard. That's why we're excited to introduce you to one of our sponsors for the One Thing Podcast, ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate through the site in just one day. The right candidates are out there and we hope you consider ZipRecruiter to find them. Right now, our listeners of the One Thing Podcast can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, for free. All you have to do is go to ZipRecruiter.com slash productive. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash productive. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. This is the One Thing Podcast. My name's Jeff Woods. Up until this point, we talked about the importance of bringing talent into your world and how you really can't afford not to bring those people in now because you should be hiring for growth, not for maintenance. We talked about, for those of you in an integrator type position where you support others, how you can have clarity on what your 20% is, how you can start talking to the people you report to so that you are able to act in order of priority and how to ensure that you yourself never get micromanaged. Now the question is, how do you as a leader Go about creating the culture where your people feel comfortable to live the one thing. I asked Brinley this very question. So as a leader, what's really important is that people want to know that they're appreciated and that you care about them. So once you've hired talent into your organization, number one, hands down, that is going to set the tone for that relationship is how you onboard them. And I was recently listening to, um, I believe it's the COO of Southwest Airlines, and they actually fly all of their employees to their hub as an introduction to the company. And they talked about the, the, how crucial it is to start the relationship 
on a good note, to set the tone, to set the expectation, to set the culture. Nordstrom does a really good job of this. It's all about the customer. And and from day one with Nordstrom, as, as a new hire and a new team member, you are treated just the same way that they treat their customers, which then empowers your people to want to take care of your business as if it's their own. People want to be praised. They want to be told when they do things well. Now, that's not to excuse bad behavior or to not hold your team accountable. Yet often as drivers, we don't slow down long enough to actually show praise. I always say in in a a driver's world, no news is actually the best news. Because usually when they're talking, there's something wrong. So let's go into this a little bit more because... You're talking about the importance of onboarding them. And we also talked about how a lot of these visionaries are just moving so fast. They don't really slow down. What are the handful of things that the leader must have clarity on? Otherwise, it will not be a successful onboarding. It all begins with an expectations conversation. So when that team member, even before that team member starts outlining what are my expectations of you as a team member? What are your expectations of me as a leader? So starting with starting the conversation with what are our expectations of one another? Because I always say, you know, if we're not clear on expectations and, and, and we don't know how to meet the expectation, well, we can't meet the expectation if we don't know what it is. Once we know what the expectations are, now let's have some conversations on how we communicate. So how do you like to receive negative feedback or constructive criticism? How do you respond in situation in highly stressful situations? On a scale of 1 to 10, how honest do you want me to be with you? Well, I want you to be an 8. Well, what does an 8 look like to you? And then writing those things down. And here's, here's the next most important thing. is Don't just stick it in a filing cabinet and revisit it every 12 months. No, until you have it memorized and until you know exactly how that person behaves and how they like to receive information, how they like to be praised, keep it in front of you. I love and that. Over time, you'll know, you'll be able to read their energy. There's not a single team member today that I can't pick up the phone and at hello, I can know exactly where they are. I think one of the other things, and this is people who've been following the podcast know um, if you go back and listen to the two-part episode called The Habit That Cost $100 Million to Learn and Why It Was Worth It. (laughs) There is a very specific habit that Keith acquired that I have been on a 66-day challenge to forming. And I'll let you listen to the episode to really understand what it is. But having the time to slow down and get clarity on what the results are that you're looking for, the questions that you can be asking is huge. I'm, I, my first hire, I made some mistakes where I just, I moved so fast, I never slowed down and I found myself just dumping everything on this individual. And mm-hmm. when Kaylin came on board, I realized I could not treat her like that. I could not do that. I required that I constantly sit down and get clarity on what do I need to see from a results standpoint from her? What are the questions that I can ask to help her understand and and guide her in how to achieve those things and give her the free reign to get it done the way she wants to get it done? And you would be surprised how many leaders overwork their best employees to the point of burnout. And, you know... in managing, there's a book in, called Managing Oneself. And in that book, they talk about that people operate at their highest level when they're in their strength zone. So I, I believe that it's allowing, finding the talent, casting the vision, and then getting out of their way and allowing them to figure out their own way of taking care of the business that fits their unique personality and their talents. Because ultimately, the success comes down to what works for each individual. They're all unique. And so they're all going to deliver in a different way. And if you're able to get them into their strength zone to deliver in the way that they do best, 
you'll always have the best talent underneath. Now, when it comes to helping your talent live the one thing as a leader, Brinley, what are some simple things that every single person on here can do starting today that would start to create a a more purposeful culture rather than a reactive culture? Communication, number one. What are some things someone could say to their people that would make it more comfortable for them to communicate? (laughs) You're not my one thing. You know, it's it's not necessarily what you say. It's what you do. And I'm always fascinated when I talk with companies that they will go their entire days and not talk to their right-hand people. And so I always say, start with a daily stand-up. And that can be 15 minutes in the morning where you just pick up the phone and you connect for the day. What's going on today? Here's what my one thing is. Here's what my one thing is. Here's what has changed since we last spoke yesterday. It's just that connection at the beginning of the day to set the tone for the day. That's on the daily. I love that. And then weekly, they crave accountability. They crave your time. And most of us don't have it. I have a team full of people that love my time. Time is their love language. And I have very few minutes. So we have to be very structured and purposeful so that they get the time that they need from me. And I have the minutes that I can give them. And I can be present with them. Now, sometimes I fail at that. The people who listen to this podcast have heard us talk about the 411. Share what you shared on stage about the importance of having a 411 with your people every week. The 411 with your people is the most important thing that you can do for them as a leader. And it has to be non negotiable. It has to be in your calendar in a certain color that says, do not move. It is number one because what we find is leaders will always move a team member's accountability or 411 in order to accommodate a customer or something that might be viewed as an income activity that, oh, I can just move my team member because they'll understand. Well, what you're telling that person is that they're not a priority in your world. And over time, the more and more you move it, resentment can build. And I shared from stage, resentment's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Once you have resentment in any type of relationship, it's very hard to come back from that. Yeah, yeah. When when I have conversations with, whether it's Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies, it, almost undoubtedly, I find that management has a rhythm for having one-on-ones with their direct reports. And when we ask them, what is your model to ensure that consistently across the board, leadership is asking the right questions to ensure that your people have clarity on their priorities? And it's always crickets on the other side. Mm -hmm. And ask yourself, what would be possible if every single day when your people walked into work, they had absolute clarity on what their number one priority was. The one thing that they could do such that by doing it would make everything else for their role, your your team, your division, your organization easier or unnecessary. I get chills just thinking about how different businesses would be. That's the 411. Which if you don't know what a 411 is, go to the one thing.com. That's with the number one in the URL. Click on free stuff and you will see the 411 right there. Download it and you'll get an email walking you through how to use it. Brindley, considering everything we have talked about, what's the one thing that person who's listening to this can do such that by doing it, everything else would be easier or unnecessary? Make hiring talent your one thing. What's the one thing they can do such that by doing it would make hiring talent easier or unnecessary? Hire to growth and not for maintenance or desperation. What's the one thing to hire to growth? Know where you're going and know Mm. your vision. What's the one thing most leaders are not doing that if they started doing would give them the vision that they currently lack? Repeat that question, Jeff. What's the one thing 
leaders are not doing that if they started doing would give them the vision that they currently lack? Managing their time and getting real clear on what their one thing is. Yeah, yeah. It all comes down to time blocking, folks. (laughs) Time for you on your calendar for you to get clarity, for you to ask yourself questions. And one of my favorite questions to ask during uh, an onboarding process, which we call a 30, 60, 90, is what am I not seeing that is required for the role? Because it's easy in the day-to-day just to be so happy that they're there. You love them so much. They're your new BFF. And to objectively have time to ask, what am I not seeing or have I just not seen yet that's required for the role? Required, meaning it's not a nice to have. If they do not demonstrate an ability to do that specific thing, they are not a fit for the role. Because remember, Jeff, we compensate people to achieve results. We don't compensate people to design or implement or create. We compensate people to achieve X result and we reward them when they go above and beyond. Bingo. Coming up, I sit down with Kaylin Less, the community manager of The One Thing, to talk about the limiting beliefs she had around living these principles and how she started learning to say no to me. This is The One Thing Podcast. What if we told you that 52% of employees said that ineffective communication is one thing contributing to workplace failure? Would you believe it? As we've grown our corporate training business, we've seen this firsthand, which is why we know that oftentimes your environment doesn't support your goals and projects drag on longer than they should. If this sounds like you, then check out Glip, which is a sponsor of The One Thing Podcast. Glip is a powerful platform that unlocks your team's potential. It does this by giving your team one unified online workspace to chat, track tasks, manage a team calendar, share and make notes on files, host video meetings, and screen share all inside one integrated platform. Since we're in the business of saving you time, we loved that 64% of Glip users reported delivering projects faster than before, and 88% of Glip users say they're more informed about their organization's projects, which is a big deal considering ineffective communication is one thing undermining their success. To start investing your time better today, sign up for a free Glip account to get unlimited access to team messaging, task management, file sharing, and more. Go to glip.com slash productive. That's G-L-I-P dot com slash productive. Glip.com slash productive. Welcome back. This is The One Thing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Woods. So much of what Brindley shared today really hit home. And we figured the next lead domino that we could knock down that would help you on your journey to bringing this language into your organization and your teams would be to pull back the curtain and talk about what this has looked like inside our company. And our most recent hire was we realized we had a ceiling of achievement when it came to the content that we were creating. And we had a ceiling of achievement when it came to our ability to truly engage with you and build better relationships with you. We were missing a person. And we found a fantastic individual. Her name is Kaylin Less. And I sat down with her to talk about what her experience was like living the one thing for the first 90 days and learning to say no to me. So I read this book and I loved it. I loved it because it's so simple and everything that everybody says about it is true. And I also had a hard time putting myself into that framework. And while I could see that Maybe a lot of other people might struggle with all the things they have to do. I I guess I found a lot of pride in my ability to do more. And so I had almost part of my identity was attached to being a workhorse and to getting stuff done and to saying yes and delivering on that yes. And so I found it hard to separate like all the things that I want to do in life and all the things that I could do and to narrow it to one thing. You came into the role and your first 90 days were crazy 
because we really threw a lot at you. We wanted to see what you were made of and and see what type of value you could bring to the business and 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 also really understand how we can bring value to you in your career. Where did that idea of being a workhorse start to not serve you? I think there's always a point when you're working hard at something that you care about where you realize that you you're at your max and you're out of your gumption starts to wane and you start to really want to succeed, but you know that there's constraints that you maybe can't drive through on your own. So then you have to start to decide what what earns a right to be on my schedule. And I think that walking through that process in in this relationship with Jeff as my new boss and KW as my new company and Austin as my new city, all of these things were like challenging me to really look closely at what I was doing and why I was doing it and trying to figure out how to... I think suddenly and I was in a position where I was talking about the process that I used to have in my head. And what I used to have in my head was a lot of self-talk that was like, why can't you do this? Get your stuff together, work harder. You don't need to like, you don't need to sleep. You don't need a lunch break. You don't need all of those things that are actual needs to stay happy and healthy and to achieve great results. I would... X those off of my list in order to choose work instead. And so for the first time, I'm in this place where I'm actually sharing that like that conversation in my head with my boss. And he's asking me, well, why? Why? Like, no, what's actually the most important thing? And what rank those in order of priority? Put them all out on a piece of paper and actually tell me what you're not gonna do. And to have somebody give me permission to say that that thing that I thought was really important wasn't as important. It was so liberating. And suddenly this like language of priority and productivity started to make sense because I shared it with the people on my team. And I didn't have to have the conversations in my head all alone. So think back over, we've been together four or five-ish months now. Think back to those points where we did a good job of giving you permission so that the other people who are listening to this, who have people who report to them can say, oh, there's an example of uh, what actually can work. So in a new role, I can, I can imagine lots of people can relate to when you're in a new role with new people, you, you're not sure what um, the boundaries of your role actually are. So anything that's asked of you, you're sort of considering like, oh, I guess I'm supposed to do this. And... I found myself in a position where I was looking at contracts and legal things and knowing that I didn't feel... I didn't have the expertise to execute on it well. And yet I also didn't know how to ask for help, who to ask for help, and what was expected of me. And that was an example of suddenly like I'm saying it out loud and everybody looks at me like, wait, are you kidding? No, we can help you with this. You don't have to do this alone. I think that pressure of feeling like you have to achieve and you have to do your best and it's your responsibility. Like sometimes I think that we confuse taking ownership for everything versus taking ownership for what's ours. And it's because we want to do the best job we can. And so the minute I asked for that, even really it was for clarification on something. And then suddenly it was like, oh, we have people to support you in this. You don't have to do this alone and you don't have to feel like you're shooting in the dark. Talk about the importance of having an established common language of productivity. What have you, what are the tools that you now feel that you have that allow you to do your most important work? For me, the language has been a game changer. So I now have... How powerful is it to know what my one thing is and to be able to say to the people around me, I can't talk right now, I'm working on my one thing. Or to send a text the first thing in the morning and let Jeff know, hey Jeff, I'm working on my one thing till noon. I'm not going to respond to any emails or anything. I'm in a bunker right now. And there's these certain like small words that in the past, I think in many workplaces, you have to sort of make excuses like, oh, I've really got this thing and this is important because... And you have to create these reasons versus just letting people know, no, this is my one thing. And it's game over. It's like the ultimate trump card to getting stuff done because 
we all know what that means. And I want to honor and respect you when you have your one thing. And just like you want to do the same for me and anyone on our team. And it's this like ultimate language of respecting each other's most important work while getting to achieve our own. Say that again. Because that is... I think people, once they really understand that what the one thing is about, especially when you start living it as a team, say what you said. It's this ultimate language of respecting each other's one thing and respecting their most important work. And that also, it applies to yourself. I think that sometimes we don't honor our most important work. We have the conversation that we're having is one with with ourselves versus with our boss or our teammate. And we try, we convince ourselves that, I don't know, this is more important. This is more urgent. This has to get done. Once I finish this, then I'll earn the right to do that thing that I know will move the needle. But we try to like clear the path before we get to it versus just knowing that that most important work is the most important work. Everything that stands in front of it is a distraction. And it sounds so simple. And like, there's things about it that, how should I say? It's just, there are things that you feel like, ah, that's not going to make that much of a difference. But when you start to like name that other thing a distraction versus the something on a to-do list or an action item or deliverable, it's a distraction that's keeping you from your most important work. And the power that that has and the impact that follows is huge. And it doesn't take long. You just start like practicing and exercising those words and then they start to actually make sense in your own in your own life. What have you started to witness and observe when, with, with regard to competing priorities? Because your one thing may not be my one thing, my one thing may not be your one thing versus marketing departments versus accountings versus what have you started to witness in terms of how to respect each other's priorities when everyone's priorities are not the same priorities? I guess it's kind of a dance a little bit. Like, for example, yesterday, your most highest priority for the week to be finished was not on my on my list at all. And I know you needed support and I wanted to support you. And so I put constraints around that support. But when it started to unravel and my priorities, my most important work wasn't getting done, I just had to put a stop on it. And by letting you know like, hey, Jeff, I've got to get to my one thing right now. And if you need help, why don't you circle back in a couple hours when I'm done with this? It starts to it starts to dance around and we can really support each other while also supporting our highest priorities. And I think the thing for for you who's listening to this, listen to the way that Caitlin was just talking. Can you imagine talking to your boss that way? But the truth is, um, I don't view this relationship that way. It's very much like Brindley was saying, this is a partnership more than anything else. It's not I'm boss, you're subordinate. It's we are a team. We are in this together. And... I ultimately succeed or fail in part based on whether Caitlin succeeds or fails. So her being successful allows me to be successful. And how cool is it that I have full clarity into your priorities for the week and you have full clarity into mine? I think that's part of that. It's part of the step where often we're guessing and we're hoping that that person has priorities that are aligned with ours. But because we have that clarity, we can communicate, we can negotiate when I can support you with yours and you can support me with mine. And and we keep moving forward. And there are days when it's really hard. And then there are days when we feel like we've like crossed a major benchmark in our success. And And we get to do that together because we have such clarity on where we are and where we want to be. Our question for you is, who are the people in your world that if they had clarity into your priorities and you had clarity into theirs, would make everything else easier or unnecessary? It would just change the game. Make the list of the people. Who are they? Write the names down. The question then becomes, what are you going to do? This is part of you know our, our business has multiple components to it. There's the content we create, whether it be the book, the podcast, the webinars. And then there's the trainings and the coaching that we do, the live events that we do. And that's to serve you in that next step, whether it be in our membership program where you learn how to hold weekly 411s so you can have clarity on your people's priorities, or whether it be our goal-setting retreat where you can come with your significant other, with your team, with your partners, whoever it may be, so you can get on the same page together. 
if you are interested in that next step, if you're interested in figuring out how you go and take this to the next level, go to theonething.com with the number one in the URL, click on the training tab, and go explore. I'm imagining people listening to this, Kalen, and hopefully they're inspired. Hopefully they, they share it with the people in their world to be like, hey, hey, we could do this. And then they're going to figure something out. And that's that living the one thing is, while it's the surprisingly simple truth behind extraordinary results, it's not the surprisingly easy truth behind extraordinary results. What would you suggest to them moving forward? I suppose my best suggestion is to start small and to know that even though we are in an environment where this language is everywhere and we have so many cards stacked in in our favor, it's also hard. There are days when I'm acting out of priority and I know it and that it's almost more painful. Or when I see someone else acting out of priority and I have this newfound empathy for the fact that I've been there and it's hard to make the distinction when you're in it. And so there are days when I don't have clarity on my priorities, but not every day is perfect. And the one thing I can do is ask, what's my, what's my one thing? Even if I don't have the answer, I can still ask it. And those tools to help navigate, navigate my internal experience and my experience within this team, they're small, but they're mighty. And so just start small. Well, there you have it our conversation with Brindley Tucker and a little bonus spot with community manager of The One Thing, Kaylin Less. Folks, no one succeeds alone. And anytime in your life you are hitting up against a ceiling of achievement, you are, in fact, missing a person. It's so easy in the day-to-day to be focusing on the business. It's, it's hard to pull back and constantly be looking out and recruiting. Yet... When I look at Gary Keller, when I think about the, the, the best business owners that I have ever come in touch with, they all have that habit. They're always looking for talent, getting into relationship with talent. And once they are in relationship, it is truly a partnership. The one thing is the language of respecting each other's priorities. It's not about who works for who or I'm your boss, so you will do this. The truth is we are all one team. We are all marching toward one goal, one mission. And if no one succeeds alone, we must succeed together. Inherently, as leaders, we want our people to have clarity on their priorities and feel empowered to act in order and priority. And as support staff, we want to be able to ensure that we're delivering the most value we can possibly be delivering. Like we shared at the beginning, one of the thieves that will stop you is that your environment does not support your goal. Our question is, who are those five people that you thought of that you said, you know what, if they could just hear this language, it just might make our culture that much more productive. Will you share this with them today? If you'd like to go on a journey learning how to implement the tools like the 411 or set goals with the people that matter most, go to the onething.com. That's with the number one in the URL. Click on the training tab. You can learn more about our Living Your One Thing membership platform. And you can also learn about our goal setting retreat where we walk you and the people most important to your success, how to co-author your goals together. Thank you so much for listening to the One Thing podcast. My name's Jeff Woods, and we'll be with you in the next episode. 